lead. You can't lead if you're not hearing the voice of God. Together, there is nothing that we can't do. I really believe that God has given us a sacred trust. wants you to respond so that we can go out in force together from this place. Good. Isn't this, great? this is awesome. So, yeah. Good morning everyone. How you doing? Good, good. My name is Adrienne Asher, and I just want to thank you so much for being with us this morning. So it's a new year, and there is a lot happening, and um, you've been hearing about this for the last few weeks. It is finally here. Our leadership gathering is coming up this Friday and Saturday. It's the 19th and the 20th, and this event is really built for if you are leading in any type of capacity, whether it's within our church, maybe you know someone who's leading at another church or just leading in a position at work. Whatever it is, this is such a great opportunity for us to come together, to be in community with each other, to be in community with God through worship and teaching. So we want to encourage you to go online or go to our mobile app, and you have to register for this event. So if you haven't done that already, please go online and do that. It's just at kensingtonchurch.org slash lead. You can get more information, and you can register. So come on out. Be with us this Friday and Saturday for our leadership gathering. It's going to be great. Well, over the past several years, we have found a lot of success in our internship program. We actually have three interns here at our campus. We've got two of them back there, Jessica, and I think Ethan's back there. And then we have somebody in the back who's doing video, and they're just interning. And what's so great about this program is it's really for anybody. Whether you're a young adult and you kind of want to know what are some of the jobs look like at Kensington or at a church, or you're someone who's switching careers and you kind of thought, oh, maybe this is something that I could do, or maybe you're going into ministry and you just want to get your hands on, you know, just some information about what jobs in ministry look like, this is for you. It's a 10-month program, and it's just designed for you to be interactive. Um, You are just mentored by the staff. You're able to just be hands-on on on Sundays and throughout the week, depending on where, what area you're serving in. So if you are interested, if that sounds like something for you, again, go to our website or our mobile app, kensingtonchurch.org slash interns. There's an application process, so you're going to want to go on get information and go ahead and start that process. And uh, this could be something that could be really good for you. A lot of these positions sometimes end up in actual positions. And so it just sets you up for a lot of cool things. January 24th. Does anyone know where they're going to be? Have you guys heard about this yet? We're going to have our very first of the new year um, midweek service on January 24th, Wednesday night. So you're going to want to be here at the JPAC, bring people with you. We're going to come together, worship, listen to some teaching. It's going to be a really great night. And you know what? We were talking about this earlier. There's only a few more of these in this building, and then we're going to be in our new building. So we want to pack this place out because the new building, we want to pack that place out with our midweek. So make sure you come out and hang out with us on January 24th. 
So when I started coming to Kensington, it was a little over 10 years ago, and it was a huge church. And, you know, you kind of go, okay, how do I connect? How do I get involved? How do I make these rows feel more like circles and relationship? And one of the ways that I was able to do that is through a group, is through small groups, ministry groups, different things like that. So I want to take a minute and bring up Tracy Hinkle. She is our discipleship director here at CT. And you've probably seen her speaking, um, giving the message. She's going to tell us a little bit about what it looks like to be involved in groups. Thanks, Adrian. Okay, quiz time. My title is Discipleship Director, and I wonder by raise of hands, how many of you know what a discipleship director does? That's what I thought. <laughs> so when Adrian was talking about groups, and, and I don't know if you said this before, but we love to take you guys from being in rows where you don't really get to have community into circles, which happens in all our different groups. And for some of you, you're ready to take a next step, and it could look like something like four weeks long, and you want to join Bible Basics in March. Or some of you are saying, gosh, I've been hearing about these small groups I want to experience that. I don't know where to go, but maybe sign up for someone in somebody's home, or maybe a mid-sized group on Tuesday nights, or maybe Alpha, which is just a 10-week commitment. When you're sitting in the chair and you're thinking, gosh, I'm ready for more, that's what I get to do. I get to help provide your next steps of more. So instead of the discipleship director, I sometimes go by, I'm the more director. Whatever the more is for you, that's what I'm here for, is to help you figure that out, answer questions, and connect you into some of these great next steps that we have. We're out in the lobby after all services. It's a connect event, and you'll see feathers and signs up there, and the people standing there are just there to answer questions. You don't, nobody's arm-twisting. Nobody's making you join anything or trying to talk you into anything, but I bet you have questions about groups, and they're there to answer them for you. So I hope you stop by after the service. Just follow the feathers. I love that we have feathers out there. So, yeah, make sure you go out there, and uh, Tracy will be out there with a bunch of other people to answer those questions for you. Well, I love the fact that there's still people coming into the building, so why don't you stand up, say hello to people that are sitting at you, and then kind of scrunch in towards the center so those people can get seats on the aisles. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? I just want to say that uh, today we are diving right into 
this topic. You've arrived for part number two of a four-part series that we're in called Crave, and we designed this series to talk about the desires of our lives or the appetites that we just simply can't control. Last week, we talked about how we can't say no to other people's approval. And if you want to go online and watch that, I encourage you because every person uh, struggles with that to some degree or another. I don't believe that any of us are exempt. I think that today, as we dive into this topic of I just can't say no to the bottle. Now, by the way, I just want to just go on record and say this. Uh, We're calling it the bottle today and we're addressing alcohol directly. However, uh, I would be, you know, I would make a huge error of omission if I didn't say today, every single principle that we're uh, talking about and applying to today applies to controlled substances or prescription drugs. Uh, It would be ridiculous to just only talk about a craving or addiction just to alcohol without saying that everything that we're looking at today uh, goes across the board. So whether you consider yourself in this category or that one, the same principles apply. Now, for a lot of us in here, you'd say, well, geez, I wonder why I even came today because that's not my struggle at all. And I would venture to say that you are close to someone who has this struggle. I was told by a resident psychologist not to underestimate the pain in the room today. And I do believe that a lot of us are close to others who are in this journey or in this struggle or fight this battle. And so as we look into what God's word says about this topic, we're going to find out and discover together that it's just as relevant back then when the ancient manuscripts of the Bible were created and written as it is right now in our society today. This next song that Amir is going to sing, uh, you'll recognize it. Uh, you'll recognize the lyrics as something you've heard on the radio Uh, This broken down version helps us to listen to the lyrics as we are asking the question, and actually multiple questions, which are, uh, is life better with a drink? Can we be honest with ourselves? Can we be comfortable in our own skin without a drink in our hand? Please don't tell me that we had that conversation 
Cause I won't remember save your breath What's the use? And I'm calling And it whispers to me softly come and play And oh, I am falling And if I let myself go I'm the only one to play amazing and also pretty uh, pretty heavy, pretty deep as you are kind of, you know, diving into the lyrics of somebody who's trying to express what's on the inside. And I think that a lot of times it's true for a lot of us in here that sometimes what's on the outside doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on on the inside. The struggle is there, the, 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 the thoughts of wanting to be sober, the thoughts of, you know, what's happening in our lives. A lot of times it's masked by the outside or the mask that we put on. Uh, as we dive into this topic today, again, I just would love for all of us to be open to what God has for us today. I believe that the Lord has a principle here today uh, for all of us in this room. As we dive into this topic, would you pray with me as we get started together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we ask that you would help us to take a look at 
what your word has to say and, uh, Father, how it relates to our lives or the people that we're close to. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand the principles uh, and, and, and how you want us to respond and whatever steps we need to take, help us to have the courage and the willingness to hear and respond. We love you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I think I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Chris Zarbon, the lead pastor here at the Kensington Church Clinton Township campus. Uh, Really excited to be a part of today, uh, actually this whole series. This series uh, revolves around an area of our life that has the potential to determine, not just influence, but to determine the direction and the quality of our life. And I'm talking about something that's so powerful that it could overpower your prayers. It could overpower your worship. It could overpower your commitment to Jesus. It's the thing that shipwrecks and marginalizes more people than almost anything else. And I'm talking about your cravings, your appetites. And appetites by nature are never fully nor finally satisfied. And when we feed appetites, they grow. When we starve appetites, they shrink. And by the way, because cravings or appetites or desires are synonymous, we understand that the principles apply in every area of our lives. So today we're talking about a specific appetite, but it's true for every craving in our lives. Cravings will either rule you or you can rule them. And if you have the power of the Holy Spirit, then you have the power, I just want you to know up front, to rule the cravings in your life. And so do I. Uh, There's a few statements and a lot of scripture that you might want to consider writing down in the back of your program or maybe going back online and watching it later. But here's the first statement. Uh, Andy Stanley says a version of this. We changed it a little bit. But uh, here's the first statement for today. Our cravings will either rule us or we will rule them. Our cravings will either rule us or we will rule them. Uh, cravings uh, are, have consequences in our lives. Our parents are where they are today because how they manage their cravings. A lot of you and myself didn't grow up with both parents in your homes because they gave in to cravings. If you want to get more specific, I would say this next statement uh, actually is, uh, is it really kind of blankets the whole series. And here's uh, this statement. How we handle our cravings will determine the direction and quality of our life. And you can even substitute it and just say, today we're talking about how we handle our craving with alcohol will determine the direction and the quality of our life. How we we handle the craving with any controlled substance in our lives will literally determine the direction and quality of our lives. Many of you know this, but my family growing up, uh, we actually owned a bar. That was our business. My grandfather's the one that actually owned it. And then we owned not only a bar, it was actually a private club on the east side of Youngstown, Ohio, but also we owned a drive-thru, like a liquor drive-thru. It was called Gina's Drive-Thru. Gina is my mom. And then we owned another building that was a bunch of different stuff, pizzeria, Goodwill, all those kind of things. We played bingo all there all the time. So that we owned the whole corner, right? And our whole family revolved around that. So I had a lot of experience with, with, uh, with alcohol in our family. Family. Alcoholism, alcoholism was a part of my family growing up. Now, many of you already know this. In fact, I would venture to say almost everybody knows this in this room. Sometimes when you're around all that, uh, you have some pretty funny stories, don't you? Alcoholism, you know, brings with it lampshade stories and everything else. And so I thought I would just tell you at one time, my brother Donnie, uh, he was uh, probably the biggest drinker in our family. He was probably only maybe just in college. And he was uh, at a bar with uh, Mark McBride and Mike Weary. And they were all drinking and they were drunk and they got in a car and they drove home and, um, and they got in a car wreck 
And, uh, and by the way, Donnie wasn't driving. Donnie was passed out in the back seat. Now, many of you may have experienced this, but when somebody's passed out, uh, they don't really know what's going on. And so Mark and Mike decided to uh, get lipstick and draw all over my brother and make him like a clown. So they, they actually drew like rosy cheeks on him like this. They put big, huge eyelashes coming out of his head. They did his lips in red. And it wasn't just his lips. It was all around his lips, you know, like a clown. And so he was passed out. He was shirtless in the back seat. And this car hits, hits like a telephone pole. And they were probably exaggerating, but they said like it like ripped in half. And uh, Mike went through the windshield. Mark hit the dashboard. But my brother Donnie, because he was so, you know, relaxed and limp, he just gets thrown from the car, rolls in the fields. But because he was passed out, he was completely unscathed. So he literally gets up and he's like, oh, what happened? So, uh, you know, everything's like tragic. You know, they call the ambulance. The cops show up, you know, the policemen, which I love policemen. They show up on, on the scene and, uh, and, and they're interviewing my brother. Donnie still doesn't know how he looks. And so the policeman, the police officer looks at my brother and says, so um, you guys drinking? And my brother looks at him and goes, oh, no, sir. No, sir. Honest. No, not, you know, not even realizing how he looks. Now, the funny thing is, is alcohol can have funny stories, right? In fact, I would venture to say I have hundreds of them that I could share. But here's what you also know, that if you grew up around alcoholism, that some of the stories aren't very funny. My, my, my mom never remarried, but she dated a guy named Sonny, who was the happiest drunk I've ever met. And he was always drunk. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen him when he was, wasn't drunk. And he used to sing Willie Nelson, on the road again. And that's the only phrase that he knew. And so he just kept on saying that over and over. And he was literally the happiest person that I've ever met. But, uh, but, but again, every, every story that is coupled with, uh, with a happy story, usually it's coupled with a story that's not so happy, in fact, even tragic. So Sonny, um, uh, my mom dated him for 20 years. Eventually, he drove home from a bar one night drunk, hit a tree, and died. Uh, Mike Weary, who I told you went through the windshield, uh, three years later, he was on a motorcycle drunk and uh, died. Uh, my, my, his, my, my brother's buddy, Mark, uh, was in AA for years and years. Um, I grew up with uh, not only alcoholism in my family, but my brothers, my older brothers would come home and they would beat us up all the time drunk. Uh, they forced me and my brother Jimmy to drink and get drunk at like ages eight or nine years old and forced us to box with each other uh, as we were intoxicated for their amusement. In my house, there was a lot of yelling, a lot of DUIs, arrests, jail time, fights, hospitals, car wrecks, crying, anger. And some of my family might even say that the bar business that was the center of of a season of our family's lives actually became the catalyst of one of the main reasons why our home eventually became a broken home. Let me just talk about the reason why people drink and are craving for alcohol. Some people drink because they they like to socialize with friends. Some people drink to numb their pain. Some focus, uh, try to focus on forgetting their past. Some celebrate victories and they drink. Some fit in or try to be cool. But alcohol is one of the most dominant themes in our culture for so many different reasons. I want you to know that our Orient pastor, Dave Wilson, sat down with resident uh, psychologist Jack Wilson. No relation, but Jack is, uh, I read his credentials last week. He has so many incredible credentials. He's an expert in, in, in these areas. And so Dave wanted to ask him specifically about what it means about, with our cravings as human beings to alcohol. 
as you watch this video, we're going to actually take a moment and uh, take our offering during this video. So as the ushers are coming down, hey, just want to say this. If you're visiting here today, we want to welcome you. Uh, this moment isn't designed to make you feel any pressure. You don't have to participate if you, if you don't want to. Certainly, you're welcome to give. But honestly, it's for, it's for people who consider this their place of worship. So I just want to say this. Giving back generously to anything is the way that God designed us to live. And he actually tells us in his word that giving back is a part of our faith walk. But I recognize that giving financially is always difficult to do. So I just want to say thank you for giving. Thank you for trusting God's word and what he says about living open-handedly. Thank you for trusting us and our leadership as well. As the offering is passing, I want you to listen to Jack and Dave as they talk about cravings for alcohol and the signs that we can look at to determine whether we've reached the tipping point. Let's take what you just said and apply it to like alcohol. Sure. When is that a problem? Let's talk about predisposition first. I think it's really, really important that people understand uh, that this isn't settled science. Okay, it's, but the trend line has been around for a very, very long time, uh, and, and it influences my thinking to the level that I truly believe that a certain percentage of the population are physiologically predisposed uh, to developing addictions, whether it's a alcohol or marijuana or a controlled substance. Uh, we're physiologically predisposed, and the best way to figure out whether you're physiologically predisposed is to look at your family history. You know, take a look at that family tree, you know, and see if there are people in your past uh, who um, have had problems with drinking or or whatever, because that used to be the term that was used. Uh, And if there is, then for you, drinking is something that you really should not be cavalier about. It's something you should really be paying some attention to, because if you have a physiological predisposition, then you're going to move through uh, recreational, moderate drinking, Uh, to irresponsible drinking and addiction much more quickly than someone who doesn't have a physiological predisposition. Now, obviously, somebody like me, you know, I look Mm -hmm. at my family tree, Mm -hmm. and I have two alcoholic parents. Mm -hmm. For decades, I never even thought about it. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I can drink a beer, I can drink whatever, it's no big deal. You would have immediately said to me, Dude, be very, very careful with this. Exactly. Everybody should be careful, but especially somebody with a background like mine. Absolutely. So what do I do? Uh, well, in your situation, uh, I, would have, I would have said to you that you need to be aware of the fact that becoming intoxicated is just not safe for you. Mm. If you were to drink even moderately, uh, then I would say there's a better than a 60% chance that you would have triggered mm. uh, your physiological predisposition. And we'd be talking about some kind of a recovery issue. And I've heard you say in the past the analogy of uh, playing Russian roulette with predisposition. Talk about that. Yeah. When we have a predisposition, um, the higher that predisposition is, when we look at our family history, you know, both your parents have a substance abuse issue, then the likelihood that four out of, if there are five kids in the family, like my family, uh, the probability is that four out of those five kids are physiologically predisposed. 
Uh, and then if the grandparents you know, have a you know have an issue, the aunts and the uncles. So the more people you have in your family tree, uh, or the more uh, more culturally relevant it is for you, uh, and you're playing Russian roulette and you're spinning the cylinder. Okay, if you don't have a physiological predisposition, yeah, you can probably develop alcoholism. It's not likely, but it's probable that you could. But let's say you have one bullet in the cylinder. But if all of those factors that I just described to you are there, then you've got five bullets um, in there, and there's only six spots. Yeah. You know? So the higher the issue is there in terms of, of number of people, then oh, we get, better be careful with this Russian roulette thing. What would you say to the person sitting out here that says, I don't really have a problem with drinking? Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they really honestly don't think they have a problem. How does a person know? Well, the, one of the biggest issues in terms of the way you know is the feedback that you're getting from the people around you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have people saying to you, uh, I think you should um, cut back on your drinking, well, pay attention to them, see what they're saying. Uh, if you're in a circumstance or situation where family members, colleagues, whatever, have said to you something about your drinking and you get angry about it, well, pay attention to what to what they're what they're saying. You know, uh, if there's a circumstance or situation in which you feel guilty about your drinking, well, pay attention to that. Uh, and uh, and if you're in a circumstance or a situation where at any point in time you've ever uh, had a hangover and you wake up the next morning and you and you convince yourself that you need an eye opener to get the day going, mm-hmm. what I just did was what's called the CAGE, C-A-G-E, uh, and it's taught to physicians and, and therapists uh, to get an introductory idea in terms of if you say yes to two of those four questions, then we need to have a chat about whether you're drinking irresponsibly or perhaps you're in a circumstance or situation where you've already what we call tipped over Mm -hmm. into addiction. Now walk through the cage again. I'd love to hear the C-A-J-G-E explained. Okay. Have you ever tried to cut back? So that's the C. That's the C. Have you ever been angry um, when someone questioned your drinking? Mm -hmm. Have you ever felt guilty, that's the G, about your drinking, and have you ever had an eye, what's called an eye-opener, you know, a, a drink early in the day um, to, to help you to have fewer um, anxiety issues or, or fewer symptoms of, of hangover. So that's the cage. Talk about, I remember a decade ago or so when we talked about alcohol, you talked about the 30-day sort of test. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Yeah, this is something that's kind of idiosyncratic to me uh, in that when someone says to me, well, how do I know if I have a drinking problem? My response is, don't drink for 30 days and come back and talk to me. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how it goes. And I found over the years that um, I've done that, you know, I don't know how many people. And um, it really is a very good predictor or indicator of what role alcohol uh, is is playing in their life if they just try to go, okay, 30 days, not going to drink. And for most folks that I've talked to, ah, it's easy, it'll be a piece of cake, don't worry about it, you know, kind of thing. And occasionally it is. But if they asked me that question, see, it fits right in the cage thing. Mm-hmm. They asked me that question, that's telling me, well, this is worth taking another look at this. You know? So try it for 30 days, and then let's talk. And by the way, if you're here and you're wondering whether or not uh, 
you know, that is you even, right? I may just talk to you directly and you think, well, I'm not sure I even have a problem, even though that some people around me might say that I do. Well, then it is pretty simple. If you don't want to involve anybody in the equation, then just try it for 30 days. Uh, And for some people, I would even say, uh, you'll know by two weeks, right? Because when it comes down to it, that's that's the identifier. That's the litmus test that says, hey, either it's easy or it's not. And if it's not easy, then you know that... uh, you know, that, that, that some more discussion needs to happen. I, I love how uh, Jack said, you know, if you answer two out of the four, uh, you know, initials for cage, if you ever try to cut back, if you ever responded in anger about what when anybody asks you about your drinking, whether you feel guilt or whether you've had an eye opener, if you've answered two out of those four, then you need to have that conversation. I think a lot of us uh, in our lives, we, we, we are... Uh, um, we feel as if because we are so strong in other areas of our life that it has a way of bleeding over into this area of our lives as well without realizing our, in a lot of cases, our predisposition. Uh, the reason why I don't drink and the reason why I chose not to drink, part of it is because of my predisposition. Part of it is because I grew up with seeing the, the drawbacks of alcohol. So I just choose never to just, you know, be a part of that because I I don't really see any benefit. And if there are benefits from alcohol, I could actually achieve those benefits in other ways that are are nearly even close to being so destructive and cost and more cost effective and and all the other things. Here's the thing. Uh, We're about to look at some scriptures and I want to give you a quick warning. There's a lot of scriptures for today. Okay. I don't expect you to write them all down. Maybe you could write the references down, but I'm giving you them to them for a reason because I want you to know that it's interesting to me that this is not a today issue. This was true thousands of years ago when the ancient manuscripts of the Bible were written. The human condition and the struggle was exactly the same. The Bible is incredibly relevant. The Bible is the inspired word of God that speaks uh, into our lives today. And I want you to know the same was true long time ago. So here's what the Bible has to say about alcohol. It lists drunkenness very often with all these other detestable and bad sins in our lives in some cases. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. So let's look at that part first. Peter says this, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. That's the ungodly people of society. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. So here's, the, here, here's God's word, literally lumping in drunkenness with some of the worst things imaginable in the Bible. But then the Bible turns around and actually uh, tells us to drink wine with, with, with a joyful and glad heart. So look what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse number 7. Uh, uh, Solomon says, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. We see other times in the scriptures that God actually uh, uh, tells us through, through his word. It says, you know, choose wine to take care of illnesses. We also know that Jesus himself turned water into wine. I went to a conservative Bible college. And, when, and, and in that college, they entered into the debate of, you know, was the wine in the scriptures fermented? Was it, was it non-fermented? Was it the same kind of wine that we talk about today? And I, I remember hearing both sides of the equation and, and their position was is that the, the water was so polluted back then and the 
filter systems were so bad that they actually had, you know, uh, you know, one part water, three part grape juice, and they referred to that as wine. And at the same time, the other side of the debate is, well, what about the other parts of scripture that says if you drink it, you get drunk, and that doesn't make any sense. And, and you know, back and forth and back and forth. And I just got to tell you something. Uh, I don't believe personally, this is my own personal conviction, I don't believe that taking a sip of wine or having a glass of wine is a bad thing. I've done that before. I will do it again. Uh, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, but again, I, I may go through the whole year and have one sip of something or, or a glass of something. But again, I choose not to participate in that because of my predisposition, uh, of my family history, and because uh, not being a part of all of that. But, but let me tell you something. Regardless of where you fall on the camp, or whether it's fermented and grape juice, whether it's wine and you know where the line is, regardless of where you are in the debate, here's the one thing that we know that is crystal clear in the scriptures. And it talks about wine or, or beer or alcohol as a craving that influences and dominates you. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 20, verse number one. Uh, uh, Solomon says, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. And whoever is led astray by them is not wise. In other words, what he's saying is, is that wine or beer has the power to lead you astray, to have influence over you, to take you down a path that you don't want to go. And when you decide to let that be the you know, controller of your life, either you will rule your craving or your craving will rule you. And if when you let that lead you astray, that is not wise. Solomon also mentions uh, the, some really in-depth, very relatable feelings about uh, uh, drunkenness in the book of Proverbs. So look what this says. And th- these, are, these are excellent questions. Look at verse number 29 of chapter 23. He starts out by saying, Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who is always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? I could just stop there. Those are pretty relevant questions, aren't they? Back then and still today, it is the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup or how smoothly it goes down. He says, for in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations. You will say crazy things. You will stagger like a sailor tossed at the sea, clinging to a swaying mass. How many of you already know uh, that is true, right? And you will say, they hit me, but I didn't feel it. I didn't even know when they beat me up. When, when will I wake so I can look for another drink? Now, listen, you thought the Bible was boring, right? I mean, who knew that the scripture thousands of years ago is talking about being beat up while you're drunk and not being able to feel it? Like, you're like, wow, that's in the Bible. There's a lot of other stuff in the Bible, too. Uh, you know, it's, it's so funny because uh, we, we hear those things still today, only we hear them probably in a different tone, right? We hear it like, man, I saw hallucinations, you know, or man, they beat me up. I didn't even feel it, right? That's not the tone that Solomon's taking. The, the tone that Solomon's taking is he's identifying it. And then what does he say? He says, it is like a poisonous snake. And in the end, it's like a viper that strikes and stings. And by the way, thousands of years ago in the first century and even before, when a viper or a poisonous snake, you know, struck you, there was no hospital to run into within the hour to save your life. Solomon is pretty clear here that in the end, this is death. And so Solomon is trying to make the comparison. Everybody hears it and understands what that means. Now, 
Not only is the Bible relevant in, in terms of like, you know, particulars, but it's also relevant with our feelings and our struggles as well. What I'm about to read for you here is a very much an abbreviated version of what I read last week. But I wanted to touch on it again because the Apostle Paul in the New Testament talks about what does it mean to try to uh, willfully have the power to do what's right, to overcome your craving and your desires and your appetites all by yourself and to want to do what is right. Here's the struggle that Paul uncovers in Romans chapter 7. Look at verse number 15. Paul says, I really don't understand myself. For, what I, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Then he asked this very powerful question. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God, exclamation mark. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says, hey, I'm struggling. I'm just identifying it. And it just seems like no matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to overcome the power that is at war within me. Who will save me from this miserable life of death and destruction? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And what we're going to unpack here is that we're going to discover is that God gives us the power. But before we can even access that or even look to it or lean into it, we have to have maybe perhaps a few steps of self-admission. There's two statements, in fact, that I want to uncover. Here's the first one. Uh, In order to have victory over the bottle or substance abuse or controlled substances, I must admit I am powerless without God. I must admit that I'm powerless Not some power, but no power. The Bible says that in admitting my weaknesses, I actually find strength. Look what 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says. This is the message version, a paraphrase, but I love how it reads. Uh, Paul says, I just let Christ take over. So the weaker I get, the stronger I become. This is not a popular idea in our culture that, you know, the culture that says, raise yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, like put your best foot forward, uh, move forward, overcome, get through it. We like to think we have the power, but the strongest and most courageous thing that you could do today is actually to admit that you don't have the power and you don't have what it takes. Because even Paul says, he says, I admit that I'm weak because I find that in my weakness, then I am strong because Jesus Christ gives me supernatural power to overcome the things that are not strong enough to handle on my own. And so here's the question. Why not just admit it now? Because the human condition refuses to change until our pain exceeds our fear. Our pain exceeds our fear. And what does that mean? Our fear of confession, our fear of people actually entering into a conversation of vulnerability, our fear of what? Going to an AA meeting and walking in there for the first time, our fear of going to perhaps celebrate recovery, which, by the way, I'll put that uh, advertisement on the screen real quick. Did you know that we have Celebrate Recovery both at the Troy campus at Monday nights on 19 and John R. Informations, you know, at the lobby in the program, whatever else on the website. But also we have Celebrate Recovery on Tuesday nights at the Orion campus about a mile north of the palace. Now, you'll be pleased to know that when our campus opens in May this coming year, we will have Celebrate Recovery at this side of town on Thursday nights. Now, Celebrate Recovery is, by the way, the most successful 
rate, I think it's, what'd you say, uh, Robert, 85% recovery rate in the world. It's the highest rate of recovery in the world. It's a global program. 85% of people who walk in, not just substance abuse, not just alcohol, every other kind of a, uh, a struggle as well. But Celebrate Recovery, to walk in there, there, it's a fearful thing, isn't it? And most people would say this. Most people would say, well, you know, yeah, I don't know anybody. Yeah, that's really fearful. I don't want people to think of me a certain way. That's fear. But you know what, you know what, uh, you know what's the most common response to going to a Celebrate Recovery? And And I hear this from every single person. Everybody, I think without exception, says this. Well, Celebrate Recovery, uh, it's probably reserved for people that are worse off than me. I don't think that I'm in that category. Like, I, I recognize there's something there, but I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not, you know, needing that, right? Isn't it interesting how every single person, I've been a pastor for going on 27 years. That's a long time, right? I started with, I was like, two. But when, when I, but isn't it interesting how every single person thinks they're in that category? And by the way, you're right. Somebody is probably worse off than you. But the bottom line is, is everybody has a tendency to think it's okay because I can do it another way. So the question is, why not just admit now that you are spiritually poor? Why not admit now that, uh, you know, instead of denying the pain in our lives and until waiting till it gets so bad in our lives that we actually have to have some help, realize now and admit now that we are desperately needing God because our lives are unmanageable without him in every area, not just this area, but every area of our lives. See, we'll be forced to learn that lesson someday. So we might as well go ahead and admit it now because we can't ignore the pain in our lives. So that 30-day challenge, I would just say, hey, if you don't want me in your face, it's not my job to decide whether or not this applies to you or your loved one or somebody that you know. That's not my job. It's your job. But, but I would just say, you know, let's just look at the facts. Let's look at what God's word says. And everything from, from, from Bible literature, faith literature, get this, to every other secular literature that is non-faith-based, to every program, to every psychologist, to every doctor, all say the same thing. This is a craving that needs attention outside of just you. And the first step is to say, I'm powerless without God. And by the way, if you'd say, uh, uh, there's a friend or a spouse that has told me that I have a drinking problem. If that's the case, there's a good chance you might have a drinking problem. If you make the statement, well, I have a high tolerance. Well, maybe you just have a high tolerance. But did you know that's the number one sign of alcoholism is high tolerance. It's not a bragging right. It's actually a pretty good warning sign. Uh, at the end of our series, we're going to ask people to come up and leave a Crave token on stage. Now, a Crave token on January 28th in two weeks, we're asking people to like to say, hey, is it too much to believe that God can actually give us victory in our lives? And so maybe for some of you, you want to bring something that symbolizes the thing that you want to give up, right? Or maybe symbolizes the thing that you want to leave behind or give to God. And a lot of people are going to come forward and leave it right on the stage. And for some people, it'll be an empty bottle, a vodka bottle, or maybe it's a full one because you don't want in your house. That's fine, right? Uh, some of you, maybe it's a porn magazine. Maybe it's a maybe it's an article of clothing for the approval message yesterday. Maybe it's poker chips or maybe cigarettes or maybe it's a, as we look at digital devices in the fourth week, maybe it's an iPhone box or something or heck, maybe it's your iPhone 10. Just leave it up here. We'll sell it or something. Um, <laughs> you know, 
Maybe, maybe it's drugs, you know, bring in drugs. We'll dispose of anything uh, and throw it away. Maybe it's an old credit card that's cut up and you, because, you know, maybe it's your addiction to money or stuff, the thing that you want to leave behind. Maybe it's a dollar bill. Whatever it is that you decide, like, this is the thing. Listen, let me just, let me just, let me just ask you to believe for a minute that is it too much to ask or think that today, even today, could be a part of your journey, a milestone in your life? Why not five years from now, you look back and say, you know, it was January 14th, 2018, about 11 o'clock in the afternoon, where God came in and changed my life forever. Why not believe that? Why not believe that God can come in and make a difference right now? Because he is powerful to do so, right? He wants to do so. And so why not just, why not believe? Why not just take the step of admission and surrender and just say, God, do something great in me and through me. Um, I want you to, next time that you take a drink, just to pause and to remember that potentially you could lose your family. Potentially you can lose your future. And potentially it could damage your faith. So what is at stake? Your faith, your family, your future. Um, here's the second statement of admission. Not only admit that I'm powerless without God, but also admit that I need help. And I would even say help from others, from others, right? Because here's the, here's what I mean by that. There's two ways to live. You can live concealing or you can live revealing. And the Bible has a lot to say about those two ways of living. Let me give you just a couple of verses on the idea of living concealing. Uh, the, 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 the King David in the Old Testament had a pretty big set of sins that kind of happened before the whole nation. And he tried to conceal them up for 18 months. And he wrote about it after, he, after it was revealed. And look what he said in Psalm 32, verse number 3 through 5. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin and you did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now for David, if you know the story, actually he wasn't the one that revealed it. It was actually God sent a prophet because he tried so hard to conceal it. But once God forced it out into the open, then what ended up happening is David said, thank God. There's even a, psalm, a verse in the Psalms later on where he says, my sin is ever before me because it was made public to the whole nation of Israel because he tried to cover it up. Um, so here, here's a way to look at concealing and revealing. The Bible basically equates and says concealing leads to death, spiritual death, emotional death. Right? Uh, sometimes physical death. Revealing equals life. We can choose to bring it into the light, into what God wants. Look what Luke chapter 12 says about this way of living. It says in verse number two, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. And what basically Luke is saying is he's saying there, whatever is secret will one day be known. And when it is finally known, then there's something important that we need to realize. This is a phenomenal statement. I'd love for you to write this one down. And here's the statement. God exposes what we cover, but he covers what we expose. See, God, God exposes what we cover. We try so hard to cover it, but eventually God says it's going to be brought to light. He, he uncovers it. 
right? But at the same time, God covers what we expose, meaning this, that the Bible says that he blankets our sin with forgiveness. The Bible says literally, when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for us, the blood covers the sin and washes it away. The covering of sin is a picture that God wants us to understand. Guilt gone, uh, uh, penalty gone, uh, condemnation gone. Not because you're so great, not because I deserve it, but because Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for every single issue that you and I ever had or ever will have. And the sacrifice of Jesus paid for our sins in full. And so just know this, that God exposes what we cover, but he always covers what we expose. Let me give you one last verse. James chapter 5, verse 16. James says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that, for the purpose of, so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Did you know that James 5.16 is the only place in the scripture where you and I are commanded to confess? And did you? And isn't it interesting how he doesn't say confess to God, although that's important. He says confess to each other. In other words, the Bible is giving leverage and weight to the idea that not only do we need God in our lives, but we need each other. You have to enter into the process with community. You know why? Because I can confess my sins with God, but if nobody else knows around me, then God already knows. He already knows. He points it out constantly in the scripture. We can't do this life alone. We need each other. That's the reason why God says the two greatest commandments in the world are your relationship with your heavenly father and your relationship with everybody else. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. God knows we need each other. It's the process. You know why? Because secrets are like splinters. The longer they stay inside and irritate, the worse they get. And the best thing to do with a craving is to get it out and to tell someone and handle it in a way that brings change. So I want to go ahead and bring out uh, Bonnie to interview her. Uh, Bonnie Phillips, would you do me a favor? Give her a huge round of applause as she comes up. Um, let me give you a little setting as to uh, why I'm bringing Bonnie up. Um, she has had a journey in this area, and uh, it kind of involves me on the onset. Um, in the summertime, we had uh, an activity, like an event at Stony Creek. All of our campuses got together, and we did like an uh, on-site baptism. There was like maybe two or 3,000 people there, and we did this baptism event, and I live-streamed it on Facebook, and then I got a text from her after the event was over, everything was shut down, all the lights were out, we were leaving Stony Creek Park, and she was talking about being lost and, and needing help, and I thought, oh no, like, did she show up at the event late or something? I had no idea, so go ahead and tell, and by the way, thank you for being willing to share this, but, but uh, do, tell your version of what happened uh, with that event. I definitely was lost. I was lost on a bar stool, probably in my, into my fourth or fifth Roman diet. Um, Facebook Live was brand new, and Chris popped up, and... I was having a really tough time. I think I was just, I was about at the end of my rope. And um, I text him and his, and his thing, and I told him, I need help, you know. So next, that was a Wednesday. On Sunday, I'm sitting like right over here. And after service, Chris comes up to me and says, so you, you need some help? You want to talk? Or no, he's, I think, how are you doing? Or something like that. I'm like, I'm good. And he's like, do you need to talk? Are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. I was like really confused. And he was really confused with my comeback here. So I get to the top of the auditorium. I'm like, Bonnie, what'd you do? 
So I pulled my phone out and I saw the message I sent him. I'm like, I could have just walked out that door. And I kind of wanted to, but something pulled me back. So I go up to him and I, I said, yeah, I need some help. And he's like, well, why'd you lie to me? I didn't lie to him. I just was so drunk. I don't remember doing it. I mean, that's the definition of, you know, texting drunk. So that was it. He challenged me. He didn't give me 30 days. He gave me two weeks. And he said, if I didn't get it together, I was going to get some treatment. So, yeah. And so, so it's probably worth saying at this juncture. So you've been sober. How long since then? 21 months. Yeah. That was the last day I ever had a drink. That was it. I was done. That was the last day you had a drink. So, last time. So she tells the story all the time. She says, so my low point was I drunk texted my pastor. <laughs> yeah, only it was, you know, innocently uh, texting me. But, but, uh, but yeah, and so, um, so, so that, and, and, and you're involved now at Clocks Anonymous, which is, which is great. And so that's, for, you know, community is really important. Uh, Celebrate Recovery is a great option here at Kensington as well, as I already talked about. Um, so, uh, but let, let me just uh, ask you to share just for a minute and just explain, like, is your life different? And if so, how? Unbelievable. First of all, the relationship with God. There's no way I could have it now um, or have it back then like I do now. And because of that relationship, my career has, is going so well. I have a vision of great things that I never, ever would have imagined I could accomplish. And I know he's pushing. You know, he's leading me. And third of all, with all that, I am speaking to people. I'm able to open speak and help people. And, I mean, I couldn't do this. this is, I'm doing this all for him. And yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do this if I was still drinking. So. Yeah, and so you were. You, so your job was in jeopardy, and you went from that to excelling. Your relationships are richer. Your, 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 the blessings that you're experiencing, the life you're living, all of that. We talked on the phone last night. We talked more in depth, uh, but just an unbelievable story, right? And so, if you were to just give a final word and say, if there's somebody here, uh, and, and maybe they're on the fence, like you were, like you said, well, I don't think I have a problem, uh, not recognizing it in yourself. Uh, what would you? What piece of advice would you give? My thing to you is, you know, surrender it. Um, give yourself, don't give yourself 30 days. Give yourself two weeks. Um, surrender it. Um, come talk to somebody. We're all here to help. Um, you need God. You really do. And he's there for you. He mm-hmm. will do this. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, do me a favor. Would you give her a huge round of applause? Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so I just want to I just want to encourage you here because if this isn't directly applicable necessarily to you, I guarantee that that you and I will, you know, go back to this message uh, at one time or another and say I have the perfect message to to, to pass on to somebody. And isn't it interesting how uh, you know God's word has a way of transcending every culture, uh, every generation, as we just kind of saw, uh, every, every person, because God has a way of reaching in and speaking truth into all of our lives. The surrender is a concept that every one of us need, don't we? So let's go ahead and pray together. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, for this time together as we share, whether listening here in this room or online. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do exactly what we talked about, to surrender. God, help us to just be willing to admit that we want something different for our lives and it just could be possible that there is truth in your word, that there is truth in the the words of those uh, around us, of our loved ones that are pushing us toward taking a step. So Father, I pray that whatever step it is that we are being nudged to take in our spirit, 
that, Lord, we would have the courage to take it. Maybe it's just a conversation. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a a celebrate recovery meeting. Whatever it is, God, I just pray that we would respond. Lord, thank you for these truths and for these principles that are timeless and that are so relevant to our lives. We ask that you be with us now. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I promise you, you're going to want to hear the lyrics of this next song as it talks about either being a victim of your circumstances or being a student of them. And, and, when, and when we decide to not position ourselves as the victim, and, and so the song itself says, I am no victim. And as we listen to how it is that we can have that posture, how, it, how is it that we can make those claims? The answer to that question or that thought is found in the lyrics of this song.
of love covered in my Savior's blood. I am no orphan. I'm not a poor man. The kingdom's now become my own, and with the King I have a One of the things that the Lord has been uh, teaching me lately is how to stay rooted in the promises of who God is and the promises of who God says I am. And I find that when we fall victim to the lies that the enemy throws at us, because that's what they are, they're lies. And I've said this before, I think the most powerful thing we can do is come back with truth. I love this song we're about to sing. It's called Tremble, and it talks about just that. The light of the truth exposes the darkness of the lies. And no matter where we're at, that's truth. So I want to encourage you to remember that through that brokenness, we're healed. So would you stand and sing that with us? Peace, calling to peace. Storm surrounding me, let it break at your name. Still, call the sea to still, the rage in me to still every wave at your name. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, silence fear, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus, breathe, call these bones to leave, call these lungs to sing once again, I will pray. Jesus, Jesus, 
to what the question that the Apostle Paul asked. He says, who will save me of this life filled with misery and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Jesus. Jesus is the name that the shadows can't deny. It's the name that overcomes fear. Jesus is the, is the name. The Bible says that even the demons believe and shudder and tremble in the presence of the name of Jesus. I want to give you just a couple quick action steps. Number one, uh, celebrate recovery tables in the lobby. Number two, if, if you, uh, 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 celebrate recovery is not your answer, but you want to get connected to others. There's the event, the small groups and the different groups we have in the lobby as well. Invite somebody with you next week as we talk about my addiction or my craving for the body and what, all everything that goes into that. Thank you so much for being here. God bless you and we'll see you next time. <laughs>